You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. We're in a little mini-series in the book of Matthew right now called The Cross. Uh, simply the cross. Uh, last week, a powerful uh, look at what Jesus did for us on the cross. And this week, the, the cross part two, we're going to be looking at the, the last words that Jesus spoke on the cross. Uh, he spoke seven uh, statements or seven uh, sentences, if you will, from the cross. And today we're going to be looking at four of them. We'll cover the, uh, the other three next, next week. Uh, if you need a Bible, the ushers are in the aisles. You'll enjoy the study so much more with the Bible in your hands. So just raise your hands. Um, and as we jump into this, find your way to Matthew 27. And l- let me give you this to think about. Uh, the words that a man utters before he dies come directly from the heart of the man. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege or the opportunity of being by someone's bedside on their deathbed. But it's a sacred moment. I was there uh, for my father's passing and for my mom's and and for many others I've had the privilege. Um, And the words that someone speaks as their last words speak a lot about the person. They come directly from the heart. They reveal what is most important to them. And Jesus' final words were amazing. They were profound. They reveal the magnitude of our Savior's love. And by all accounts, Jesus did not speak much on the cross or on his six illegal and unjust trials. Uh, We just finished a series on the six illegal and unjust trials, and we learned during those, he did not speak a lot during those trials. Uh, He uh, really was, uh, well, he fulfilled what Isaiah spoke about him, and that he will not speak out or plead his own cause. And as the lamb was silent, is silent before its uh, slaughter, um, so he is was silent before his accusers. And, and so there in the courts and there in the mock trials that he had, he did not plead his own case. He never said, this isn't fair. This is unjust. Jesus is sovereign. He is powerful. He could have undone everything. He could have won the argument. He could have, with just a word, got out of it. But he never lifted up his own voice, uh, just as Scripture would say. He would not cry out. He will not raise his voice. He was quiet. But when he did speak, his words were profound. And again, there are seven statements from the cross. We're going to be looking at four of them today. And each one gives us a window into Jesus' person. Do you know God is a person? And by that I mean he has feelings, he has emotions, he has a will, he has a desire. uh, uh, he, He cares. He gets hurt. He has a person. You are a person as you're created in his image. And the last words of Jesus really reveal the person of God. They help us understand uh, Jesus' mind, Jesus' heart, and Jesus' mission. And so we have a, a good study ahead of us as we jump in. If you haven't been with us, I want to remind you that the crucifixion of Jesus was not a tragic end to his life. It wasn't a bad luck at the end of a good life. No, for this purpose, I came, he said. He came for this purpose. And he shows this sovereignty all through his crucifixion by having these prophecies that he foretold what would happen. And sure enough, they're happening. We've looked at many of them along the way in our previous studies. And today will be the same. Uh, But it's amazing his sovereignty over it all. Uh, If you just look at even the last week of his life uh, it was his sovereignty was over all of it. 
You'll remember that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume. It was a year's wages. And all of the disciples were upset, like, oh, what waste, right? And what did Jesus say? Leave her alone. She has done this for my burial. Jesus knew what he was going towards. It didn't look like it at all. It didn't look like he was moving towards crucifixion. I mean, his ministry was thriving. Everything was going good. No one else had a clue it was coming. But Jesus knew, sovereign over the whole thing. And there, after Mary anoints his feet, he goes to the Last Supper, and he girds himself, and he says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but afterwards, you will understand. And no doubt they did. He girded himself with a towel. He washed their feet. And afterwards, they go, oh my gosh. He then went to the cross. He then resurrected. That was the creator humbling himself and washing our feet. And he says, as I have done to you, now love other people this way. He broke the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. He took the cup. He said, this cup is a cup of my, uh, a new covenant, my blood shed for the remission of your sin. And he was showing his sovereignty over it all. Judas then betrays him. He goes to Gethsemane and he sweats great drops of blood. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, your will be done. And it shows that uh, this was the only way to purchase our redemption. There was no other way. Jesus, of course, then arrested that night, taken to Annas. And the six mock and illegal trials happened. And we looked at all of them. Uh, Annas to the Sanhedrin, to Caiaphas, you know, the, the Sanhedrin there and these mock trials. And then again, uh, off to Pilate to get executed. And Pilate sends them to Herod. Herod sends them back to Pilate. And then finally Pilate executes him. And he whips him with the... You know, the Roman whip with the cat of nine tails on the end. And it just, he's a beaten, bloodied mess. Beaten to a pulp beyond recognition. And then they nail him to a criminal's cross. And that's where we pick up our study today. That's where we jump in. Uh, Matthew 27. And let's pick it up at... Uh, let's pick it up at verse 37. Are you there with me? Matthew 27, verse 37. Give me a big amen if you're there. Amen. And offer a prayer in your own heart real quick that the Lord would speak to you from his word and that you would be willing to receive and willing to hear what the Spirit would speak to the church this morning. Uh, verse 37. They put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. When someone was executed in Rome, they would put the crime that he committed, the criminal committed, above his head. Jesus had no crime, so they put above his head, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Verse 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, and one on the left, again fulfilling a prophecy, showing us that God is sovereign over all of it. Uh, uh, a prophecy in Isaiah 53, he'll be numbered among the criminals, among the, transgress the transgressors. Uh, verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him. They blasphemed Jesus, wagging their heads in arrogance and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself if you are the son of God. Come down from the cross. We looked at this in depth last week. This is the Jesus that the world wanted then, and this is the Jesus that the world wants today. Jesus the nice guy, Jesus the miracle worker, Jesus the, the teacher, but not Jesus on the cross. And if you missed last week's message, I would encourage you to uh, go back and listen to that. It's available online. Uh, come down from the cross and we'll believe, right? Verse 41. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking him with the scribes and the elders. Uh, the elders of Israel. There we have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, or in other words, the Sanhedrin, uh, the religious governing body, the, the high court of Israel. They're mocking Jesus. And here's what they say, verse 42. He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe him. 
He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Jesus was killed because he, he was uh, claimed to be God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same things. This is what we did to the Messiah. The long-awaited Messiah who was prophesied that he would come, who was foretold from the beginning of time. This is what we did to him. This is what we did to Jesus. This is what we did to the God who became a man. We spat in his face. We beat him to a pulp. And then we crucified him. And it is in this hostile environment that Jesus spoke his last words from the cross. Oh, I would encourage you for a moment, think about your own position. If you were there, if that was you, what would your words be? What would come out of your mouth? How vile would be the words coming out of your mouth? And yet we see Jesus speaking his last words on the cross, anything but vile, they are profound and life-giving. The first words he spoke from the cross uh, were found in the book of Luke. And you don't have to turn there. Uh, as we look at these last words of Jesus, we're going to see, uh, we have to look at all four gospels as a composite, and we'll see the, the seven last uh, words of Jesus. Luke 23, though, let me hear you read this. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. Them, for they know not what they do. Here, Jesus writhing in pain, this hostile environment, and the words that come out of his mouth, so life giving. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And here we learn something from the first phrase that Jesus gives in his last words. It's uh, revealing something about him. Jesus declares his desire to forgive us of our sin. These words reveal his desire, the, the purpose of his coming. Oh, my desire, my heart is that you would be forgiven of sin, Jesus says. And this statement reveals that it's his desire to intercede for us and to forgive us of sin. Think about what he's going through. His body in severe trauma. Perhaps even convulsing as he's there on the cross. His hands and his feet still throbbing from the spikes that were driven completely through his flesh. All the way through. Big spikes nailing him to the cross. His hands, his feet throbbing in intense pain. And they're, uh, you know, just looking down from the cross. Writhing in pain. Every breath is a struggle. And he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Think about what he was seeing. He sees the men who had blindfolded him and hit him in the face. Who had spat on him. Who had punched him and said, prophesy to us, king, who hit you? And to them he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He sees the soldiers who mocked him. The soldiers who brought the cat of nine tails across his back. Ripping off chunks of flesh. So that his very skeletal muscles, the... the, the, the sinews and the tendons all exposed as he's bleeding to death there on the cross. He sees the soldiers who did it and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He sees the men who just drove the, spokes, the spikes through his hands and feet. He sees the mockers who just five days ago with all kinds of religious fervor cried out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us, Messiah. And in their religious fervor, they were crying out, save us, Messiah, set up your kingdom. And now those same religious, super spiritual people are there going, crucify him, crucify him, mocking him. And to them he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. 
He sees his disciples. All of them have fled. He sees Peter, who's denied him three times. The one who said, even if all of these deny you, I never will. I'll even die for you. And now he's watching from afar because he's ashamed to be with Jesus. And to them, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Oh, how incredible the love of Jesus Christ. He sees the religious leaders who are so deceptive in plotting this execution. And now they think they have won. And they're sneering with all of their pride and all of their arrogant behaviors and their smug looks and they're mocking him. And upon them, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Incredible to consider. Jesus tortured and bleeding to death, sleep-deprived, humiliated, writhing in pain. What does he pray? Wrath? Vengeance? Anger? No, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. How incredible that this is God's nature. How incredible that this is God's person. Aren't you glad that this is who God is? Aren't you glad of his amazing grace and mercy that flows so freely from his lips? And here on the cross, Jesus is making intercession for the transgressors. The very ones that are crucifying him, he is interceding for, just as Isaiah said he would. Look at this verse in Isaiah that so describes what he's doing right now. Isaiah 53. Uh, let me hear you read this. He poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors or with the criminals. He bore the sins of many and he made intercession for the transgressors. Yeah, Jesus is declaring his desire to forgive sin. He is interceding for transgressors. And how encouraging is it to know that this is Jesus' desire to forgive us of all of our sin, all of our arrogance, and all of our greed. And I want you to think about this. If while on the cross, under intense pain, on the edge of death, physical death, Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. If on the cross, Jesus cries that out to his enemies who are mocking and abusing him, how much more will his grace flow to us who have gathered in his name to worship him? If when we were enemies, he did this for us, how much more now as sons and daughters does his grace flow into our life? And may we hold on to that. May we embrace that. Uh, Jesus desires to forgive us. This is why he chose to become a man. This is why he chose to go to the cross. And the next time you are feeling worthless, the next time you are feeling like a failure, the next time you are just so disappointed in yourself because you can't believe you did it again. May you remember Jesus' great desire to forgive you of your sin. This is what he wants to do. This is who he is. This is what he loves to do. And may we hold on to it with all of our heart. This is his nature. Hebrews chapter 4 uh, is a great verse to cling to, to hold on to, uh, speaking of his great desire to save us and forgive us. Let me hear you read this. This is Hebrews 4.14. Jesus, the Son of God, let me hear you in a thundering voice. Let's read together. Jesus, the Son of God, is our great high priest who has gone to heaven itself to help us. Therefore, let us never stop trusting him. Think about what we just read. He's our high priest and he has gone to heaven to intercede for us to help us therefore may we always be coming to him with our failures and with our faults he wants to forgive us let's read the rest of the verse 
this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. Since he had the same temptations we do, though he never once gave way to them and sinned. So let us come boldly to the very throne of God and stay there to receive his mercy and to find grace to help us in our times of need. Such a good passage. Jesus desires to forgive us. And the last words of Jesus reveal that divine forgiveness flows freely from his heart and from his lips and from the cross of Jesus Christ. I often hold on to these words of the Apostle Paul written in Romans chapter 7 and 8. It's almost Romans chapter 7 almost reads like a personal diary. You know what I mean by a personal diary? Where you're recording your own thoughts that you really don't want anybody to ever read. And Romans 7 reads just like a Paul's personal diary. In Romans 7, for those of you who know it, it says, Oh, wretched man that I am. I have this big problem, Paul would say. What's the problem, Paul? Here's the problem. I want to live for Jesus, but instead, I live for myself. That what I want to do, that's not what I end up doing. And that what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. I say, I'm not going to give in to my flesh. I'm not going to give in, get angry. I'm not going to be selfish. I'm not going to boast. I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm not going to be a jerk. And next thing I know, I'm all of those things. That what I want to do, that's not what I do. That what I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this bondage of death, Paul writes. Why does that happen? Well, because in Paul's heart, he wanted to be a godly man, just like I do in my heart. But in the reality, my flesh often gets in the way. And Paul then moves on. He says, who will deliver me from this bondage that I'm in? And he answers the question, I thank the Lord. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How incredible that this grace and mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus. I love that, that, that therefore. It's my favorite therefore in the Bible. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, therefore means in light of what? In light of this mess that I am, there's no condemnation. Because Jesus looks from the throne and says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In a very real sense, any time that we sin, we don't know what we're doing. We sin because we think the ways of the flesh will be better than God's way. And so I act out in anger thinking it'll produce what I want, but it doesn't. Or we go to the bottle thinking it will produce what we want, but it doesn't. Or we give in to the lust of the flesh because we think it will produce what we want, but it doesn't. And in reality, if we would do it God's way, it would be so much better. And to that, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They really don't know what they're doing. Oh, I'm so thankful for the manifold grace of God that flows so freely from his throne. And Jesus said it this way. He said, uh, tell me if you know, know this. He said, he who is forgiven much, loves much. Let's say it together. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Let's say it one more time together. He who is forgiven much, loves much. Here's the question. Who has been forgiven much? Oh, all of us. All of us are wretched sinners. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And he who is forgiven much loves much. When we realize how much God has forgiven us, 
when we realize how freely his grace flows, it transforms us on the inside. And I am so thankful I don't walk around striving to be good so that I can earn God's favor. I know I already have God's favor. And every time I mess up, I just go straight to the cross. I go, Jesus, it's me again, sinner, reporting for duty. Please wash me and cleanse me because I want to get back on track. I never forget my role. I'm the sinner. He's the Savior. And I never twist those around. And what happens is, I'm so in awe of his grace and mercy towards me that it then allows me to be more gracious and merciful to others instead of being a cruel taskmaster. Why'd you do that? Right? Which is what my flesh wants to do when I'm trying to be good in my own steam. So may we come boldly to the throne of Jesus. Uh, for the second statement on the cross, the first statement again, just revealing his tremendous desire to forgive us of our sin. Uh, for the second statement, we have to flip over to the book of Luke. Uh, so flip over to Luke 23. And we're going to pick it up in verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. Luke 23, verse 39. And here we see the second statement of Jesus on the cross. Luke 23, 39. If you're there, give me a big amen. Then one of the criminals who were hanged, one of the criminals there on the cross with him, blasphemed him. That's Jesus. Saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. Just mocking Jesus. But the other criminal answered and rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you're under the same condemnation? This is interesting. Why? Because we just read both of the criminals were mocking and blaspheming Jesus. And now suddenly, one of the criminals has changed his position. Why? Here's why he heard the first statement of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And that criminal said, oh my gosh, this is no man. That is not a normal human. That is the Messiah. And he believes. And here, look what he says. Uh, Do you not fear God, seeing that we are under the same condemnation? In other words, dude, you're going to stand before God in just a moment. You're going to die. Verse 41. And we indeed justly, we deserve what we get. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, he was talking to the other criminal. Now he turns his head to the other side to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, Lord, calls him Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He understands who Jesus is. You're the Messiah. You're God in the flesh. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. So awesome. So powerful. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And in this statement, we see Jesus declares his mission. His mission? Yeah, what's his mission? To bring us to God. That is his entire mission. He came to forgive us of our sin. Why? So that he could bring us to God. That's his mission. And this sinner, this criminal, this hardened criminal, guilty of a life full of sin, a life full of evil, a life full of wickedness, The one who had been originally mocking Jesus, not believing, now he recognizes Jesus as Lord, and on a moment, without earning any merit whatsoever, and without performing any penance whatsoever, he just says, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
and Jesus gives him eternal life. Verily, verily, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Wow. So awesome to consider. Oh, the power of God. Oh, the, the grace and the mercy of God. And it shows us how just the purpose of Jesus' mission is to bring us to the Lord. Think about this criminal. If we know anything about criminals, they're repeat offenders, right? It's just they do one and they just go back to crime. It's one of our biggest problems today. Our poor police officers get no support from the judges, right? Uh, someone commits a crime, they go and they get a little two-day sentence and they're back on the streets again. And these poor police officers officers risking their lives and this guy was a hardened criminal repeated offenses and Jesus says today you're with me in paradise the amazing grace of God I want you to consider something these two thieves these two criminals they represent something Jesus in the middle of them criminals on both sides they represent something. What do they represent? They represent all of humanity. You see, we are all criminals who have broken God's laws. There is none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and are currently falling short of God's glory. All of us are criminals against God. And Jesus is in the presence of criminals. And these two criminals represent all humanity. All humanity is in two camps. Both camps are guilty of a multitude of sin. Both camps are awaiting God's judgment. And Jesus is in the presence of both of them. And here is what we see. One will believe and one will mock. One will believe and one won't. One will go to hell and one will go to heaven. And it's just a matter of understanding God's great love for you and nothing else. And here we see re, uh, salvation just revealed so freely. Salvation is a free gift from Jesus. It cannot be earned. Jesus did not tell this thief, oh, buddy, I, I wish I could do something. You need to start going to church. <laughs> oh, buddy, I wish I could help you, but you haven't been baptized. You need to go get baptized. You need to have your first communion. No, Jesus didn't say any of those things because there's nothing we can do that will ever give us salvation. Those things are the result of salvation, not the things that bring salvation. If you are saved, you will get baptized because you're saying, I don't want to give in to the desires of my flesh. I want to live according to the Spirit. I want to die to the flesh. I want to live according to the Spirit. That's what baptism is a picture of. Your death and resurrection associating with Christ. But we don't do any of these things to earn our salvation. Our salvation is a free gift. It flows freely from the, the hands of Jesus, from the lips of Jesus, from the cross of Jesus and it's available to all who call upon Jesus as Lord hey, if you're here this morning and you haven't accepted the free gift of salvation that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ and you're thinking oh, I'm going to clean up my act I'm going to start coming to church I'm going to start doing better good luck with that by the way <laughs> good luck with that But you can have salvation as a free gift. Here's what the Bible says. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Saved. And guess what this criminal on the cross just did? He called on the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, I uphold my promises. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And that guy, from just his belief is now in heaven on the same day. Uh, how remarkable, how remarkable. Two thieves, they represent all of humanity. You're on one camp or another. Uh, you know what else is equally amazing? Not only is it amazing that salvation is a free gift to whoever asks, it is equally amazing that when we acknowledge Jesus as our Lord, that Jesus begins to do incredible things with our lives. 
that he invites us into ministry with him. That he says, yeah, I'll forgive you of all your sin, but not only that, now I want to do life with you. I want to hang out every day with you, and I want to use your life. You do for what? To bring others into the kingdom. To bring others the same incredible forgiveness that you have. To bring others the same understanding of the love that I have for you to bring that same understanding to others. I want to use your life. And the moment that we get saved, we become children of God and we become partners with him in building the kingdom. You have a ministry to do. Did you know that? You are on the mission field. It's why we call this church the mission church because we all have a mission. And guess where your mission field is? It's right between your two feet. You walk into Home Depot, and guess where you are? On the mission field. You walk into the Apple Store, and guess where you are? Liberal land, man. That's the mission field. You go to work, and guess where you are? You go to school, you're on the mission field. Jesus wants to use your life, and he does incredible things with our life the moment that he calls us. He uses our lives to bring others to Jesus. Consider how powerfully Jesus has used this thief on the cross to reach the hurting. How many millions of people do you think have been saved as a result of this thief on the cross? Countless millions. How many on their deathbed who said, listen, there's no way Jesus could ever forgive me. Oh, I knew my whole life. I kind of pretended I was an atheist, but I knew, I knew, I knew he was calling me and I've stiff-armed him. There's no way he would ever forgive me now. And now one of his servants comes and brings him the story of the thief on the cross. And he goes, are you kidding? He would forgive me after all I've done on my deathbed? Yes, he would. And the prayer was made. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. How many criminals in prison read this story? They're murderers, they're rapists, they're thieves, they're drug dealers. And they go, oh my gosh, I could be saved. How many prostitutes, how many whatever you fill in the blank. Imagine the joy it gave Jesus to not only see this thief, this criminal get saved from hell. But knowing also that his conversion would draw countless lives, countless broken lives to grace and to repentance. And this is Jesus' mission to bring us to God and may we embrace it wholeheartedly. May we bathe in it for ourselves and every time we mess up, hey, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. And Jesus, I know you're bringing me into the presence of God. Oh, man, may we just let it flow into our lives. Uh, the third statement of the cross is found in the book of John. You don't have to turn there. It's just a couple of verses. I'm going to put it on your screens. John 19, verse 26. Uh, let me hear you read this. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour... From that hour, that disciple took her into his own home to care for her and to provide for her. And the third declaration on the cross simply reveals Jesus' desire to provide for us. It's a declaration of provision. John is the one writing in that John 19 passage, and he doesn't even use his own name in humility. He just calls himself the disciple who Jesus loved. Do you know that could be said for every person who comes into a relationship? That thief on the cross could call himself, I'm the criminal that Jesus loved. I myself can tell you, I am the knucklehead that Jesus loved. And you can adopt that for your own. And Jesus on the cross, looking down, says, John, behold your mother, and mother, behold your son. 
Jesus cares about our needs. Jesus cares about our provision. Jesus cares about our well-being. And here Jesus takes care of his mom. And he will take care of us as well. So comforting to know. There's a Bible verse that says, a, a proverb, uh, it says, I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. God is so good to his people. He will take care of us. But put yourself in Mary's shoes right now as she looks up at her son on the cross. Can you imagine what kind of sorrow must have filled Mary's heart to see her son, uh, the one that she loved, being tortured, being mocked, being crucified? The disciples fled, but not a mother. The mother is there at the feet of Jesus, brokenhearted. And oh, think about what must have been going through her heart. She, the one who had first held the hands that were now pierced. Nothing better than a little baby grabbing onto your finger. And she who had held those tiny little hands now sees them pierced on the cross. She who had kissed the little brow that is now crowned and bleeding by a crown of thorns now looks at her son in tremendous anguish and just uh, is brokenhearted. You'll remember that when Mary took baby Jesus to the temple at his dedication, uh, they would be circumcised on the eighth day. And she takes him to the temple to be circumcised and to dedicate him to the Lord. That's where we get our tradition for baby dedication. She takes Jesus to the temple, and there's a man there, a, 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 just a regular church leader there, a regular leader in the temple, and his name is Simeon. And there Simeon sees Jesus, this little baby, and he says, Now I can die in peace, for my eyes have seen the salvation of the Lord. He was a godly man, and God had told him, you're not going to die until you see the Messiah come. And there he sees just this regular family, little baby, and by the Holy Spirit, he perceives that this is the Messiah. The role of the Holy Spirit in our life is so cool. It gives us understanding in the divine truths that we could never know on our own apart from him speaking to us. And here he speaks to Simeon's heart and he says, this is the Messiah. And Simeon says, oh my gosh, unbelievable. God, you're so good. I can die in peace now. But then he utters a prophecy to Mary. And he says, Mary, this son, this child is destined for the rise and fall of many. Many will despise him and many will worship him. And he will reveal the hearts of all men and he will be rejected. And Mary, your own soul will be pierced. And now Mary looks up at her son on the cross. This prophecy being fulfilled. This work on the cross revealing the hearts of all men. He's either the Messiah or we mock him. And Mary's soul pierced. And Jesus speaks down, looks down, and with tender words provides for her through John. Jesus is capable of taking care of your needs. He knows what you need. And he's able to minister to you accordingly. Jesus cares. Uh, how amazing how he provides. There's also something that uh, I want to hit real quickly on this subject. Jesus here sets an example for us. You see, there's a commandment. There's ten of them. The fifth one, anybody remember what the fifth one is? Honor your father and mother. And here Jesus obeys perfectly and shows an example of what it means to honor your father and mother. What does it mean? It means you take care of them. It means you don't put them away in a home. 
and throw away the key. It means that you're there for them and you you minister to them and you provide take care of them. And Jesus does that for his mom here. Uh, I find it so interesting. If the Savior of the world was not too busy to honor his mother, may we not ever use that lame excuse. Um, a lot of wisdom in uh, the aged, and uh, it's good for us to honor our mother and father. Uh, let's flip back to Matthew 27, and uh, let's look at the uh, last one that we're going to look at today, the fourth declaration of Jesus from the cross. Matthew 27, we're going to pick it up in verse 45. I'm going to give it to you ahead of time. The fourth statement of Jesus declares the cost of our redemption. The incredibly high cost of our redemption. Let's look what he says. Uh, Verse 45, are you there? Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. The sixth hour, the day started at sunrise at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour was noon. So from noon to 3 o'clock, there was darkness over the land. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, or about 3 o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. This is an interesting phrase. It is a combination of Hebrew and Aramaic mixed together. Eli is Hebrew for God. Eli, Eli, he speaks in Hebrew. God, God. Lama Sabachthani was Aramaic, and it means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who were standing there, when they heard that, they said, This man is calling for Elijah. Eli sounds a lot like Elijah in Hebrew. And Jesus was very weak. Probably hard to hear his voice at this point. Uh, We're going to read. He was dehydrated. His tongue was swollen. He was thirsty. And they say, oh, he's calling for Elijah. Verse 48. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, trying to bring aid to him. Verse 49. The rest said, let him alone. And let us see if Elijah will come and save him. Those who said, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come and save him, had to understand something about who Elijah was. Which means the people who were saying this were religious people. And here with no heart whatsoever, no care of what's happening to this Messiah, God in the flesh, Jesus on a cross, they just want to be entertained with religious stuff. Let's see if a miracle happens. Let's see if Elijah comes. Revealing the hardness of their hearts. Tragic to even consider. We saw from the thief on the cross that our salvation is a free gift given to us. But make no mistake about it. Our redemption is not free at all. It costs Jesus everything. It's free to us, but it wasn't free to Jesus. It was a tremendous cost. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Jesus here is expressing the pain of being forsaken by God. Here God has placed on Jesus the sins of the world on Jesus' shoulders. And therefore God the Father turns his face away from God the Son. And from the first time in all of eternity, the divine intimacy of the Trinity is broken. For the first time in all eternity, God the Son is separated from God the Father, from God the Holy Spirit. You'll notice that he said to the triune God, 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why didn't he say, my God, my God, my God, what Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Because he was God the Son being forsaken from God the Father, being forsaken from God the Holy Spirit. As there he takes upon his own shoulders, a, a separated from God, the sins of the world. We all know this to be true. Separation from a lover is far more painful than separation from a coworker. The greater the intimacy of love, the greater the pain of separation. The more intimate relationship, the relationship, the more painful the wound of separation. And here, the divine intimacy of the Trinity beyond our comprehension. The Father always, God the Father, always delighting in God the Son. God the Son, always delighting in God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit, always delighting in God the Father and God the Son. And this intimacy that was so tight, now broken. This was the pain that caused Jesus to sweat great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. The pain of the separation of this intimate relationship of the divine trinity. It is beyond our comprehension and I am quite sure this is the most mysterious sentence in the entire Bible. And as much as I'm trying to unpack it with you all, I want us all to just acknowledge we can only understand it like a child. This cost was so high, beyond anything we could grasp or understand. Jesus himself became sin for us. He became sin. His body became sin on the cross. And Jesus took the full weight of sin on himself. And because of it, God the Son experienced full separation from God the Father and from God the Holy Spirit. The most mysterious words in the entire Bible. It's interesting... Uh, I mentioned this a few weeks back. Uh, here, in a in very unusual fashion, uh, Jesus always called God my Father. And here, in a very unusual fashion, he doesn't call God my Father. He calls him my God, my God, as he is separated, as he is in our position. He takes our position on the cross, and instead of calling God Father, he calls him my God, my God, just as we would. Uh, Jesus took our place. I want you to know, Jesus did not die on the cross for humanitarian reasons. Jesus did not die on the cross for a religious cause. Jesus died on the cross as our substitutionary sacrifice. He died for you and for my sins. And the Bible tells us that something very interesting happened. What did we read? What happened when the Trinity, when the divine Trinity was separated from the first time? What happened? There was darkness on the earth. The light of the world went dark. And it is very interesting. I believe it is a physical darkness and also a spiritual darkness. And here's some things to consider. This darkness was not a solar eclipse. Don't think, oh, it was just cloudy and overcast and it got darkened a little bit. No, no, no. This was darkness. And it wasn't a solar eclipse because Passover is tied to the lunar calendar. And Passover always happens on a full moon. And on a full moon, the moon is always on the other side of the sun in the sky. The sun is on this side, the moon is on this side uh, on a full moon. So it couldn't be a solar eclipse. A solar eclipse, the moon has to be on the same side as the sun. So it's not a solar eclipse. This was something divine. This was God causing darkness on the face of the earth. This was a supernatural act of God. And what's fascinating is that there are multiple historical records by ancient historic historians that indicate that this was not a local darkness, but check this out, a global darkness. Wow. 
Wow. Uh, there is uh, uh, Flagan, who was a Greek writer, a Greek historian, and he writes this on your screen. So let me hear you read this. In the 14th year of the reign of Tiberius, the greatest eclipse of the sun that was ever known happened. For the day was so turned into darkness that the stars appeared. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Uh, we're going to learn about that earthquake next week in the cross part three. Uh, but here is a secular historian writing about this darkness, saying the darkness was so severe that you could see the stars in the middle of the day. That's pretty dark. There are all kinds, there are scores of ancient historians, uh, a lot of them not uh, biblical, not, I mean, just regular secular historians. There's Tertullian, there's Josephus, there's Thallus, and there's scores of other. Uh, put that quote back up for me, if you will. I want you to see something here. Notice it says something, in the 14th year of the reign of Tiberius. Does anybody remember who Tiberius was? He was a Roman emperor. Interesting. He reigned from, uh, from 14 A.D. to 37 A.D. If you take the 14th year of Tiberius, who started in about 14 A.D., that takes you to when? 28 A.D., and there might be an error here of a year or two, but we see this happens to be, he's writing about the very time when Jesus was crucified on the cross. Wow. And uh, so do the other secular writers. Darkness covering the earth as God's son, God the Son was separated from God the Father. I want you to know our redemption came at quite a high price. And God was trying to communicate that to us. God is just. He cannot just wink at sin and say, oh, you're forgiven. No, 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 no. It is impossible for God to just forgive sin. All sin must be punished or God is not just. And it is either punished on the back of Jesus Christ or on the back of your own back. The choice is yours. And because God is just, the Father was separated from the Son, the Son separated from the Father, and darkness fell on the land. I want to give one more uh, passage to you. Flip over to Psalm 22. Uh, this forgiveness came at quite a huge cost. And Psalm 22, we'll wrap up with this, this, this psalm. Uh, psalm 22, I mentioned it to you last week to study ahead. I hope you did. Psalm 22 was written in 1010 B.C., 1,010 years before Jesus was a baby. And it was written as if... As if Jesus himself was writing it while he was on the cross. It's a position of what it was like for the Messiah to be on the cross. Psalm 22, are you there? Uh, let's read. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar? The very words of Jesus on the cross, Jesus was referring us back to Psalm 22 so that we would know, every Jew would know exactly, who was a Bible student, who would know exactly that was Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Good question. And why are you so far from helping me? Why are you so far from the groaning of my words, right? From the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the nighttime, I'm not silent, but you do not hear. In other words, God, why aren't you answering me? Why have you forsaken me? I'm crying out, I'm calling to you, and you have forsaken me. Why? Here's why, verse 3. Because you are holy, enthroned with the praises of Israel. Verse 3 answers the question to verse 1. God is holy and he can't be associated with sin. And so the father turns his face away from the son, God the son. Verse 4. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and they were delivered. They trusted in you and they were not ashamed. 
But not me, the Messiah would say. No deliverance for me. I am a worm and no man. A reproach of men. And despised by all the people. God, you delivered all our fathers. You delivered Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and all the men of old and all the saints. You've always delivered them, but not me. I want you to know something. When, when someone was martyred for their faith, they may have been killed by man, but they were never forsaken by God. And here, Jesus is killed by man and forsaken by God. Why have you forsaken me? Verse 7. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot the lip. They shake their head, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Does that not sound exactly like what we just read in Matthew 27? This was written a thousand and ten years before Jesus. And here Jesus gives first person, they're mocking me. They're saying these things to me. Let him deliver him since he delights in God. Verse 9. But you, God, are he who took me out of the womb. And you made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You, my God. Jesus was God in the flesh. And yet God is forsaken him. And here, uh, verse 11 through 13, very interesting. Check this out. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. What the heck is that? Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. What is that? I want you to know these verses right here, I firmly believe, are an insight into the spiritual world. This is an insight into the unseen world. We know that Satan had possessed Judas in order to get Jesus to the cross. We know the demonic activity among the Roman soldiers as they whipped Jesus and did all these things was at an all-time high. And here, Jesus, having the ability to understand, to discern what goes on in the spirit world, he says, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls from Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. The Bible says that Satan walks around like what? A roaring lion seeking who he may devour. Ephesians tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against a spiritual host of wickedness in high places, against dark forces. And here Jesus gives us an insight into that spirit world, Psalm 22 does, of what was going on, what he was experiencing, and what was transpiring. Verse 14, look at this. I am poured out like water. Yeah, he was bled out. He was dehydrated. He was anemic. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. Amazing. This is first person from the cross telling us what was going on. Jesus died of a broken heart. You'll remember when they stuck the spear in his side, what came out? Blood and water. Talk to any cardiologist. They will tell you when the pericardium fills up with water, it's because something is going wrong in the heart. And here Jesus says, my heart is like wax. It's melting within me. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a pot shared. My tongue clings to my, to my jaws. Uh, Jesus, with one of the next, we're going to see it next week, uh, one of the phrases, I thirst. We'll look at what that means. You have brought me to the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me, these cruel and wicked and evil men. Uh, the congregation of the wicked have enclosed me. Look at this. They pierced my hands and my feet. Oh, my goodness. You have no idea how prophetic this is. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians at 300 AD. This was written 1010 BC, excuse me, 300 BC. Uh, this was written 710 years before that, 1010 BC. 
the Romans came along and, and perfected crucifixion uh, at about 100 BC. Uh, and here, a thousand years before all of that, Jesus, uh, as, as if first person, saying, they pierced my hands and, the, and my feet. Crucifixion not even invented yet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. His, his, his flesh completely off his body. You can see his skeletal frame. Verse 18. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing they cast lots. Oh my gosh. They gamble for my clothing. All this to say. What a high, high price. Jesus purchased. Our salvation. What a high cost. The cost to purchase our redemption. And this psalm gives a picture of all of it. By the way, if you're a Bible scholar, this is fascinating. It'll blow your mind uh, super fast. Uh, psalm 22, 23, and 24. Three psalms, a trifecta. All of them about Jesus. Psalm 22... Jesus crucified. Psalm 23, Jesus the good shepherd. Psalm 24, Jesus the king of glory. Wow. Psalm 22, Jesus in the past. Psalm 23, Jesus in the present. Psalm 24, Jesus in the future, the King of glory, who's coming very soon, coming very soon. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.